Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but struggling to diversify your candidate pool? We have something that can help, our job board. Head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to browse listings or to place your own. This week on the job board, Lyra Health is looking for a head of product design in the San Francisco Bay Area. Companies, stop making excuses on your DNI efforts and post your job listings with us. For just $99, your listing will be on our job board for 30 days, and we'll spread the word for you about your job to our diverse audience of listeners. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Revision Path. I'm Maurice Cherry, and before we jump into this week's interview, I just want to remind you again about our annual audience survey. Now, as you know, Revision Path has been around for a long time now, for seven years, which is eternity in podcasting. And, you know, we really ended up becoming this platform to showcase black designers and developers and digital creatives from all over the world. And as the show gets older, as we creep on year after year, we want to know how we can make it better for you, for the listener. We need your input so we can grow and sustain ourselves in this weird design media landscape, really in this weird media landscape in general. And, you know, we want to, of course, give you more of these great conversations that you just won't find anywhere else. So if you really want to help us out, you can take the survey. It's at revisionpath.com forward slash survey. There's a link to it also in the show notes. It should take about five minutes or so to do. And from that survey, we will choose one lucky person to win a $250 Amazon.com gift card. And I know that can definitely come in handy because Amazon delivers groceries. So if you want to help us out, again, the survey is at revisionpath.com forward slash survey. The survey will be up until the end of the month, May 31st. I just want to thank you again so much for listening. And of course, thank you for your time and for your feedback. Now let's talk about our sponsors, Facebook Design and Abstract. Facebook Design is a proud sponsor of Revision Path. To learn more about how the Facebook design community is designing for human needs at unprecedented scale, please visit facebook.design. This episode is also brought to you by Abstract, design workflow management for modern design teams. Spend less time searching for design files and tracking down feedback, and spend more time focusing on innovation and collaboration. Like Glitch but for designers, Abstract is your team's version control source of truth for design work. With Abstract, you can version sketch design files, present work, request reviews, collect feedback, and even give developers direct access to all specs all from one place. Sign your team up for a free 14-day trial today by heading over to www.abstract.com. Now for this week's interview. I'm talking with Samuel Adaramola. He's a filmmaker and multimedia creative in the D.C. metro area. Now, when we recorded this interview... Samuel was a media producer on the Bernie Sanders campaign, so you'll hear us talk a lot about that through this interview, even though, of course, Bernie is no longer in the presidential race. All right, let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. 
Hi, my name is Samuel Adaramola. I am a multimedia professional currently working as a media producer for the Bernie Sanders 2020 presidential campaign. What is a regular day like for you on the campaign? And I'm asking this considering for people that are listening, we're recording this on April 2nd. We are in the midst of this coronavirus outbreak. As much as that has impacted nearly every industry and every sector, I'm just curious, like, what's it like working on the campaign right now? Well, let me start by answering what it was like before the unfortunate pandemic. And yesterday made it a year since I've been in a campaign, and this is my first time working on a presidential campaign. And every day is different. And what we're trying to do in the campaign and what we're able to accomplish somewhat was do everything internally in terms of our um, production, like all of our design is in-house, all of our ads that we do a video, and all of our social media videos w- was done in-house. So it's a constant churning of production. And this means that we have to put on multiple hats. We have to be producers, we have to be editors, we have to be filmmakers as well. So every day kind of brought something different So sometimes it'll kind of give you a newsroom vibe where you are, we meet regularly and try to determine what ideas do we have for today or this week based on certain policies that have been released or certain things that are in the news cycle. We want to meet regularly to determine what that is. And sometimes these ideas are uh, short term, like quick turnarounds Mm -hmm. based on news cycles. And other times they are long form projects like if we want to go to a certain community and like for example i was i had the the privilege and honor of uh, going to north carolina durham north carolina to mcdougall terrace which is a public housing facility that was unfortunately been neglected and as a result the tenants there have been living in inhumane conditions. So finding stories like that or having those stories come our way where we will have to fly out to certain locations and do some location scoutings and set up interviews and things like that. So it really depends, but I would it'll be most likely kind of like a newsroom setting where we're just meeting together and trying to figure out what's the best idea to put out there. And I'm part of the digital team and we would this is comprised of film editors, graphic designers, the social media team as well. So we will just come together and like kind of discuss different ideas. Now, in, in the face of this this pandemic, we have had to pivot like most people in America and, oh, well, the world uh, right now. We've had to pivot to a fully remote operations. And we've tried to, and what we've done, and shout out to our team, we have sh- kind of pivoted to focus in a live stream and doing content that way. But however, we have regular meetings online and we are coming together and kind of keep that vibe to like brainstorm ideas of how we can do it in the midst of this pandemic. One idea I, I wanted, I pitched in, in the middle of producing is how does this pandemic exacerbate the disparities that exist in Black communities and low-income communities. So I was able to reach out to some doctors who serve low-income and Black communities and, you know, do a, a Skype or Zoom call and have it recorded and conduct interviews that way. So I think you know this, Maurice, and I'm sure your listeners do know this as well. It's like creativity really comes when there's constraint. And I think right now, we are in a deep constraint where we are forced to kind of think outside the box and try to find ways to really get our messaging out there. Yeah. 
How did you first get involved with the campaign? You've been there now for a year. That's a long time in a political campaign. I don't know if people that are listening really realize that, but given the intensity and the frequency of work that you have to do, a year is a long time. Yeah, a year is a long time. And how I did get involved in in the campaign was prior to being joining the campaign, I was working as a multimedia specialist for Our Revolution, which is a nonprofit that came out of the Bernie Sanders 2016 campaign. I wasn't involved in a 2016 campaign. I wasn't, honestly, I wasn't really, I wouldn't call myself a very politically active person, but I think that the opportunity came at a time, I was freelancer prior to that, and it came at a time where I was kind of, to, for lack of better words, fed up with the working on projects and work, doing things that I didn't really care for. I call myself an idealist. I believe in a, in a better world, and I wanted to work in, work in that capacity, use my creativity for good. And this opportunity came I was share luck, saw it online and applied and I was liked enough to <laughs> to be asked to join. Yeah, I was there for three years. It initially started as the lead designer there and we weren't doing any type of video production and anybody would tell you the landscape of social media, you kind of want to be producing videos, whether it be short term or long term. And I saw it as an opportunity to kind of pitch that idea of, hey, we should do videos. I have a little bit of a background in it. I minored in in film in my undergrad at Towson University. So I was comfortable doing it. And I also did a little bit of uh, video work um, while I was freelancing as well. So I pitched it, put up a budget of what it would cost to get all the gear. And shout out to Senator Nina Turner, who's also a part of the burning campaign. But when she came in to be the president of Our Revolution, she sat all the staff down one-on-one. And one of the things that we talked about in my one-on-one with her was that this, my desire to kind of rebrand the campaign. And she gave me that opportunity and I was able to do that as the lead designer. This was before I, I switched roles, but I just wanted to kind of throw that out there as, as that being an experience that really allowed me to kind of like flex my muscles a bit in the creative capacity and actually take on the task of rebranding an organization. Since our revolution was so closely tied to Senator Sanders, it was kind of a no-brainer that people who are involved in our revolution take on the opportunity to join the campaign. So it was just like an easy transition. And uh, Senator Turner, who was the president of our revolution, joined the campaign. And we were given the opportunity to join the campaign as well. And that's how it it happened. Luck, being at the right place at the right time and, you know, rising to the occasion and stepping up to those opportunities. It sounds like it's a little more than luck, though. I mean, you put in the work, too. Yeah. I don't want to, like, I want to maintain humility here, but I definitely worked hard. Being in Our Revolution, which was a, a new organization and, you know, kind of, we were always trying to, as the the term goes, we were always trying to build the plane while flying it. Mm-hmm. And I'm very proud of the work we were able to do there. And a lot of people who are a part of Our Revolution are on the campaign currently, and we're still, you know, doing great work. And it, it, it was kind of like... We graduated college together and we all started the same job together because it was such a an experience that, how can I say this, that constituted growth. And 
being in a campaign allowed us to grow even further in our respective areas. Uh, I can speak for myself that, you know, joining the campaign as a media producing, producing all of some of these uh, social media videos and being a part of some creating some ads. I did some voiceover work for one ads, but just being a part of that process and kind of see how things have been made in my year uh, definitely allowed me to to grow in my creative capacity. I mean, it sounds like you have the opportunity to involve yourself in a lot of different projects within the campaign. Like you just said, there's a little film, there's some voiceover, you know, you're doing design work. And for those who don't know, like, I mean, I've mentioned this on the show before. I used to work in a campaign, this, not a presidential campaign. I want to be clear about that. It was a mayoral sure. campaign. So I at least understand to a degree the level of intensity that has to go into it. Of course, running for mayor and running for president are two entirely different things in uh-huh. terms of scope and scale and everything. But I know what it's like, like being in a campaign office late hours, everyone's working together, such a, it becomes a very tight knit group of people. Yeah. And you've all went through this experience together. Like it's interesting, like even from past administrations, how you hear like, say the Obama administration, you hear about people that are working together or they've partnered up with someone else who worked with the campaign or something like that. Going yeah. through that kind of crucible of an experience is, it does spark growth because there's just so much that's it's a really like a microcosm almost of what it's like to work for a business or to run a business, you know, there's uh, yeah, so many I, different things you have to do. Absolutely. I would say that, you know, it, it does kind of feel like a startup. I do want to backtrack. I didn't do, oh, I, I haven't done much design work, if at all, uh, during the, this, the campaign. My task was mainly uh, video production. So that's where my lane was. But, you know, okay. I some of the designers who came from our revolution are the designers in the campaign. And I was, I'm able to like collaborate with them and and with certain pieces and see what they're working on and put our heads together for creating dope content. But yeah, you're absolutely right. It it is a microcosm, so to speak. You you don't know how much you've grown until you sit and look back. And, you know, with, with my one year being yesterday, I'm like, wow, I don't think I would have created this many videos or pushed myself this far, like uh, some things that I was kind of a little apprehensive about doing initially, April 2019, I have no fears in doing that right now. So definitely appreciative of this experience and how grueling it is. I mean, I have no reference. I mean, you've worked in a gubernatorial campaign and I had no prior campaign experience. So (laughs) it's funny because a colleague who was at Our Revolution, who uh, didn't want to join the campaign, she had her experiences in campaign, she's like, oh, my experience is enough. (laughs) I think that's uh, one thing about campaigns. You either will only do it once or it's the only thing you will ever do. Oh, yeah. And (laughs) I I haven't done it at all. So I said, let me uh, let me see what this is. uh, Let me see what this is about. And at least I believe. And again, like I mentioned before, I'm an idealist and I believe in a a better world. And that's part of why I support Senator Sanders and have been a part of kind of his his network of policy and social change because in him what initially drew me to him because I've never seen someone run for president who is a documented I guess activist for for the civil rights movement and I'm referring to the picture of him getting arrested for protesting housing segregation in Chicago seeing that picture and be like huh he's running for president and knowing that he wasn't aware that that picture even existed. And you know what they say that show me who you are when nobody's looking. 
that's your true self. So that's why I taken a liking to him so much initially and just kind of grown to believing in equitable world for everybody. You know, that's why I'm here and that's why I want to continue to fight. When I worked with campaigns, it was so it's funny you mentioned that about the point of reference. There was no point of reference when I did it either, because I was mm-hmm. working on the first set of municipal races after Obama got elected for his first term. So Obama's first term, you know, that team did so much around design and social media and getting the word out that was really unprecedented for not even, not even just a political campaign for president, but like any type of campaign like that. So those first sets of municipal races afterwards, I will tell you every politician that I spoke with, wanted to copy that Obama playbook. They were like, how do we get votes through social media? How can we do what Obama did? I'm trying to get some of that Obama magic. And it's like, hire someone from Obama's team? I don't know. (laughs) But like, it was a lot of trial and error. And at the time when I was working in a campaign, I mean, I had my own studio. I, I had just started actually my own studio in late 2008 after Obama got elected. And the okay. first big client I had was the political campaign that I worked on. And mm-hmm. so it was a lot to kind of come up to speed with what they were trying to do and like the message they were trying to get out. And I mean, it was a totally, now that I think about it, that was over 10 years ago. It was a totally mm. different landscape. Like we had a MySpace page. Oh, wow. That's a throwback. <laughs> we, had, we, we had a custom MySpace page, babe. We had a Flickr page. We had a meetup page. Like, uh, I think we, yeah, Twitter was around. We had Twitter. We had Facebook. We had LinkedIn. Like, you know, like uh, most of the big social media places that are, that are out now was there, but like we, we legit had a MySpace page. Like it was that, right. it seems like ages ago, but that was like over 10 years ago. And I'm curious because technology has continued to change since then. I would say most notably, how much more people are using smartphones. Like there's a lot of push towards mobile, a lot more things going on mobile. I'm curious, you know, from your standpoint, how do you plan for mobile given that like more people are used to receiving like text messages and doing stuff with apps and things than they were, I'd say even four years ago in 2016. Oh yeah. I mean, some things that, you know, I observed and whether directly or indirectly played a part of during the time of the campaign is that our ground game is strong in terms of our organizing efforts and our fundraising efforts and how we, one of the ways we prepared for mobile is we actually developed a map, an app for mobile. And in this app, you can see all of the policies there. You can see some of the graphics that our design team has created. You can see some of the videos that pertain to some of the policies that we've created all on the app. So, and not only that, we've made it an engaging experience where people can sign people up to register, help register people to vote. And if you have a network as friends, you could share all the videos and share all the graphics and stuff. So that's something we definitely kept in mind. And we had, and, you know, like I mentioned, we did everything in-house. We had our in-house product team that, you know, developed this the technology and the apps to create it. So that's definitely something we've always kept in mind. Even on the video sense is, we always create our videos to be optimized for a mobile experience. So we're cutting things in square. We're making sure that captions are are always present and, and legible. So whether you have a disability or not, or whether you just don't have the, the volume of your phone on, we want to make sure that people are able to see 
or at least read what the video is about. So these are things that we've always kept in mind when we're constantly creating, whether it's something that is as direct as having an app created or in the way we create videos and create content. Do you have to do any internationalization? Because just given the the coalition of people that you know you try to reach as a president, I'm wondering do you have to do a lot of like translation or things oh, yeah. of that nature too? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things that we started to do was we started to translate all of our graphics to several several languages: Spanish, Arabic, a slew of others. Where we started to to have that in mind with our videos as well. We will always do Spanish translations, especially if it's a video that pertain to specific policy or issue that uh, affected that community. So that's always something that we, we kept in mind. And I'm proud to say that we did a pretty good job with it, especially on the graphic side. How do you end up reaching supporters or voters who are probably not traditionally online in like this current pandemic climate that we're in right now? Yeah, I mean, one of the ways we did it, and I guess pre-pandemic, is that we had a lot of volunteers who would make calls, and that was probably one of our largest efforts in in organizing. We made millions and millions of calls to you know organize people to vote or volunteer or get active in this political campaign. And again, you know, going back to the app, the app was kind of like a device that is used for you to go out and talk to people and engage with people and share what you're what you're seeing and share why you support the campaign. So those are the little ways that we attempted to reach people who aren't online. Okay. So the app then kind of, I guess, has like talking points or you're able to kind of use that almost as a guide to talk to other folks that aren't online. Okay. Yeah. All right. Now you're working in media, you're a media producer, as you know, and as I'm sure our audience knows between 2016 and now we have seen a proliferation of what's the best way to call it? Can I call it a smear campaign? I don't know. But like we've seen this proliferation of quote unquote fake news and distrust in the media. And we've seen lots of altered media, whether it's photoshopped images or even like deep fake videos and stuff like that. What are your thoughts on like the challenges of truth and veracity in media? Like when it relates to that sort of stuff with the public service sector? Cause I mean, now we see social media sites like Facebook and Twitter trying to fight those, you know, kind of claims of misinformation. How does that mm-hmm. sort of stuff work in a campaign? I mean, fortunately, we haven't had to deal with like deep fakes of Senator Sanders out there. I think the onus is on people to be as media literate as possible. I think we can't only rely on these on like big social media companies, Twitter, Facebook, or what have you, to kind of take it upon themselves to to do it. I mean, they should do it, absolutely. But we also have to make sure that we are as media literate as possible, you know, having the ability to identify a deep fake or to question and to evaluate and analyze the content that we're consuming. But that's a tall task, honestly, because I guess human beings were just predisposed to do what's easiest and most convenient. And mm-hmm. so I think I think as in a campaign, I'm not sure how it manifests itself, but I think what we, we try to keep in mind is that we are to the best of our abilities are sourcing material and sourcing facts. And we constantly cross reference with our policy team to make sure that 
everything that we are using and putting out is legitimate. And I think that's part of the process of tackling the misinformation. And I think if we have presidential candidates running, that should be something that is constantly at the top of mind, just making sure that they're not falling victim to these false claims and false facts that we see online. And hopefully in the future, and I think we're not too far away from this, is in future presidential campaigns that there are platform-specific things that deal with disinformation and fake news, uh, for lack of a better word, because it's been abundantly clear, like you mentioned, since 2016, that, you know, facts and reality and and uh, it's, it's being under attack, you know, journalistic institutes are being under under attack. So I think it's something that we need a leader with a vision to fully understand that, hey, these places, at least some of these sources are our friends and their job is to inform the public in in a true manner. So, yeah. So before we started recording, you asked me how I found out about you. And so I said, I was oh, yeah. going to wait till we got on the show before I mentioned this. So last year in September, which seems like 20 years ago at this point, just to be honest, uh-huh. with you, it was like I mean, late September last year. I will tell a story. So I was on Twitter under the revision path handle and I asked, are there any black designers or developers on any of the campaigns of the current candidates running to become the next U.S. president from either party? If this is you, let us know. Because I was like, you know, we're going into January 2020. I want to be able to talk to some black creatives that are like on these individual staffs. And I mean, September 2019, there were like 30 people running. It was like a bingo card on the Democratic oh, side. Yeah. You know, there was a there was a ton of folks that were running. And so I was like, I reached out to every candidate multiple times or the candidates campaigns, at least reached out multiple times. And we heard back from. Only one campaign, it wasn't Bernie, I'm just going to be honest with you, <laughs> it was Beto O'Rourke. We heard back from Beto's campaign, and he was like, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll pass it on to the team, right? Other than that, I couldn't find anyone. And so I said, well, let me just go on LinkedIn and just start searching for, like, designer with the candidate's name. And so I'm doing that for all of the, you know, had a spreadsheet doing it for all the candidates. The only one, the only person I found was you with the Sanders campaign. And this was back in September of 2019 when I said there were like a lot of people running on both parties. So that's how I found out about you. (laughs) Well, all right. I say that to kind of lead into my next question, though. Like, what is it like for you being a Black creative working in politics with progressive organizations? And there, um, and I'm not the only one, fortunately, in, in the Bernie Sanders campaign. As far as uh, the Black creatives go, there are on my team in, in the videos, a uh, talented uh, motion graphics designer. Her name is Bria. She's on the team, a young Black lady. And there's another on the d- design team. Her name is Laura as well. So there's, there's, and there's also Chris and, and Samarius. We were represented within the Bernie Sanders campaign in terms of black creatives. But as far as like what it's like to be a creative on the campaign, honestly, I would say it's kind of like any other job, but like more intense and a lot more is on the line. But obviously we are privileged in a sense to be there and kind of serve as a voice to our communities. And, you know, all black people aren't the same, um, but when you have representation, even in from the top on down, 
It's very important because it allows you to voice your opinion and perspectives that may not have been considered or, or thought of before. So as it relates to what I've been doing on the campaign is that when I am thinking of a video idea or creating some some work in whatever capacity, I'm always thinking about, okay, how does this affect my community, you know, black community and the black immigrant community too, because I'm a first generation Nigerian American. So I'm always thinking of these things in, in this way and how I create and how I birth ideas always has that frame of reference. So I'm fortunate that there hasn't been a lot of hurdles for me to be able to voice my ideas and my opinions and they have always been met with respect and consideration. So I can't, there isn't really anything I could point to that can, that's much different from what anybody else would, would experience. Mm -hmm. Now you mentioned being first generation. Where mm -hmm. did you grow up? I was born in Lagos, Nigeria and um, was immigrated to America uh, when I was two. So I was basically raised in America, but I was undocumented all of my life and well most of my life most of my adult life too so i've kind of been raised as american you know as as american as apple pie as people say but not having documentation until i graduated from undergrad so a lot of my time in america was kind of living in the shadows not mm. really getting opportunities that one would normally get as a citizen of the country mm. so yeah, it was, it's particularly difficult. And that's actually how I actually got to becoming a designer. I've always had an interest in being creative. And in, in high school and even middle school, I would like, it's funny when I think about this, I ha kind of had a head start in political, creating for uh, political campaigns because one of my best friends in elementary school ran for a student president and I drew his campaign posters <laughs> and I would always, you know, draw on clothing with fabric paint and that I kind of developed an affinity for creating. And, you know, I didn't find out my undocumented status until I was, you know, graduating high school and wanted to, you know, go to college. But I didn't have a social security number and I didn't find out until I was, you know, applying. And that's kind of how my world got flipped, turned upside down. Not to quote Fresh Prince, but... <laughs> I was still able to go to school undergrad because of two things. One, my late mother, who was a permanent resident and she was um, on disability at the time, she was giving me some of her disability checks to go towards paying tuition. And I'm not saying it like it was a lot, but it meant a lot to, to her because it was such, it was her only source of income. But uh, what I was taxed of doing is completing the rest of it. And I did that with a group of my friends. We, I was DJing in, in college and we would throw parties. And one of my friends, he made a flyer for one of our first parties that we were going to throw. And it looked like something that came out of Corel paint. Like it was just a, <laughs> a terrible looking flyer. And I knew, I mean, like I mentioned, I was creative up to that point and I, I just knew I had a, a taste of what looked good and what didn't and literally when I saw him do the fly I was like nah we could do better than this mm -hmm. and I went in our, our school library and I looked at YouTube tutorials of how to make flyers in Photoshop and like nine hours later I had a Halloween party flyer and that I was really proud of and 
kind of stuck with it and that morphed into figuring out how to make uh, logos and figuring out how to create different brand assets. And I kind of just hacked my way into learning design. Mm -hmm. And when I graduated, because I got my undergrad in, in mass communications uh, with a concentration in advertising and public relations, I graduated college without like a portfolio, like somebody who would have traditionally gone to school for design. But I had a portfolio of like several party flyers and some logos that I made for student body organizations. So I thought I had a little something. I thought I was working with something. You couldn't tell me nothing back then. But then you get humbled <laughs> when you apply for jobs and you're like, oh, so that's what real design looks like. But I eventually ended up working at an advertising agency in D.C., and my role wasn't design. My role was uh, being a digital producer for the social media department. And that's just basically someone who project manages different projects for uh, different clients. And what that enabled me to discover was the process of creating with multiple creatives. Got to work with developers. I got to work with uh, other designers. I got to work with copywriters. And I got to be someone who was tasked with managing the resources and the billable hours for everyone who is working on a specific client project. So being able to sit in a room and meet with clients and have the ideation process of what they, they seek and desire and actually see it to through fruition by observing the creatives on the team there, it kind of opened my eyes to, okay, I know I was doing all this stuff, making party flyers and doing all this knockoff stuff, but I'm in a room with people who've gone to school and did this stuff and super talented. And I knew then that, okay, I didn't want to be the project manager of this stuff. I actually wanted to create, I wanted to be a designer. Mm -hmm. And there was only few, a few black people there at the time, maybe still is, who knows. But it was myself and I think on one other person, but the person I want to bring up, her, her name is Kim Williams. And I bring her up because she gave me the opportunity to to um, to go for it. I remember one day I uh, came into work and she pulled me aside. We went into a room and she was like, hey, I noticed that you don't seem like yourself or, you know, something slacking. You know what's going on. There's not too many black people here. And I just want to make sure that we are holding each other up and, you know, doing what we can do to survive here. And I just opened up to her and said, hey, Kim. I want to do what you're doing. She was the art director there at the time. I was like, I want to design. I want to be a part of the producing this creative stuff. And she said, then why don't you do it? And I was like, huh, <laughs> <laughs> I can. Right. <laughs> but like she was like, you can do this. Like you can really do this. I have books. I have stuff that I can give you. You can just dedicate your time to learning this stuff and, and, and being creative. And you can find yourself doing this work. And, you know, she bought me a Wacom tablet and wow. she gave me some, some books and she just kind of like patted me on the back and sent me on my way. And I was like, wow. And to this day, like, I, I can't like talk to anybody without mentioning her because that kind of put me in the trajectory of, you know, where I am today. Like if I did not have that conversation with her, if she did not pull me aside as have that come to Jesus, black person, a black person conversation, mm -hmm. you know, I wouldn't be here speaking with you right now and my kind of career to, to that conversation. And I appreciate her wisdom back then. So I kind of like, I ended up leaving because of personal reasons that I had with my family, but I worked part-time at a nonprofit 
organization and then I dedicated the rest of my time to like going ham with with designing figuring it out taking on freelance gigs here and there just to get better and as a result the portfolio I was able to put together from that time was what landed me at our revolution and being at our revolution is what landed me at being a part of a presidential campaign wow. so yeah that's quite a path yeah it is you mentioned Kim Williams you were at Ogilvy when this happened right yeah I think we've had that same Kim Williams on the show. She, for a while, was design director at Indeed. Yeah. Yeah, we had Kim, yeah, we had Kim on the show last year. Look at that. Yeah. Small world. Small world, big Small world. world. <laughs> <laughs> was your, was your yeah. family, like, supportive of you going into this creative route? I mean, you, I can only imagine first generation, they kind of yeah. want you to go into something that's more lucrative and more, you know, yeah. secure. Yeah, absolutely. I'm blessed because my parents were, my dad is a hippie, right? Okay. I call him a Nigerian hippie because he's traditional, <laughs> he's a traditional patriarchy type of figurehead, but he's also into like meditation and juicing and metaphysical stuff. He's not uh -huh. your typical Nigerian man. I think for some immigrants, their experience are different. I think some people come in here with the idea of, I'm coming to America to be the best X, Y, Z. Other people say I'm coming to America to survive. So my parents were the survivors, right? Mm -hmm. My dad had many odd jobs. He was an ice cream man at one point. He was an insurance salesman. He was a taxi driver. He was everything. So his idea of uh, success wasn't really tied to being a doctor or a lawyer or engineer, which is like what the stereotypical expectation is of a black immigrant uh, child. So his idea was just, you know, being happy. And my mother, on the other hand, she was just more or less the same, just the idea of, of being happy. Like when I was in elementary school and high school drawing on shirts and ruining my clothes and making new clothes out of old clothes, my mother says, yo, this looks good. Can you write some Bible scriptures on the shirt for me? So they've been supportive in that sense. And I think because of another thing is that some people come to America with the understanding of the how to navigate the immigration system and other people don't because they're just on survival mode. Again, my parents were on the survival mode and that unfortunately and somewhat fortunately, resulted in me being undocumented for most of my life. So I don't think my parents quite had time to worry about what I'm going to do with my life, but they always kind of made sure that they provided for me. And I always felt like I was a good kid. I knew I wanted to be creative or do something in some creative capacity. But I think I am a product of my environment. So having relatives and friends who belong to the Black immigrant community and seeing that most people are in those traditional doctor, lawyer, engineer paths because of what their parents want for them, you do find that quite often. And you do, I do kind of feel at an earlier point in my life, felt pressure to kind of fall in line. You know, at one point I thought I was going to be an entertainment lawyer because that was my way of working in media and still having a respectable position. But I think what most immigrant parents and elders who come here they just aren't educated on how lucrative some of these careers can be. Like, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. they may not know that you're a developer, or they may not know that, you know, you're a designer or a media producer. They're just not accustomed to it because all they know is that, you know, being a doctor is distinguishable. 
and can earn you a high income, but also, you know, somebody, even if it's a doctor, somebody had to design the tools that they're using. Somebody had to create the software that they're inputting their patient information in. You know, these positions are very valuable. And I think it just takes people like me and other people who are in similar career paths or those untraditional paths to kind of educate them on that. And I think some people are coming around to that now. Yeah, well said, man. I mean, first of all, it's great to know that your parents were really supportive of you being behind it. But I feel like that's something that, and you know, I've had hundreds of black designers on the show. I don't think this is unique to black designers, but I think it is unique probably to people of color that are going into a creative field is that unless there's an example that they can see that parents, you know, or, or guardians can see of like some type of financial success, mm-hmm. then they're like, okay, I'm good with this. Cause you know, our parents grew up in a totally different environment, totally different Absolutely. age. They had to go through a lot more, struggles than we had to and they sacrificed to make sure that our generation wouldn't have to have those those sacrifices and so maybe being seen as going into a creative field like that because they don't see examples of success they Mm -hmm. probably think the opposite right off the bat like oh you're just going to be like spray painting airbrushing shirts at the (laughs) fair or something like that you know but not see how that could turn into something much more necessarily say much more lucrative but that you can take that creative skill and use it in a number of different applications. Yeah, everybody's needed. You know, I think everybody can't be a doctor. Everybody can't be a lawyer. Everybody can't be an engineer. But I think what you said is is, is exactly right. I think like when they have a hard time seeing the success of those untraditional paths. So it is kind of like a trial by fire where you just got to kind of do what you want until you just are successful. And you're like, hey, mom and dad, like I did it. If you watch that Netflix movie Uncorked, but it kind of has that same same feeling to it. Um, Don't ruin it for me because I haven't seen it yet. And I do, <laughs> it's, it's really I do want to see it. Watch it. I'm going to watch, watch it. it. I'm going to watch it. <laughs> and that's, that's also when I wanted to talk about the dualities of the black identity. It's like, I think sometimes the black immigrants and black Americans or descendants of slaves, we're kind of sometimes pitted against each other. And I think like when we, we can realize that we have similar experiences and we can learn to celebrate our differences. And that's all I want to do with my life. You know, being raised in America and just having, just being an immigrant, I always felt like I'm not quite, you know, American enough, but I'm also not quite Nigerian enough. So I'm just like in this little, little box and I'm like, but I experienced both things. And I just wanted to mention that, like, it's good to, kind of share our stories and be able to celebrate each other, whether it be a creative pursuit or not. It's just good to know that we exist. And I think our communities and the communities, the black community in general is that much better by, you know, having our stories told. Yeah, absolutely. So later on, you know, you mentioned going to Tucson. Am I saying that right? Towson, Towson, yeah, sorry. Let me. Yeah, I'm like looking at it like, is it is it Towson? Okay, no. <laughs> so you you mentioned going to Towson for undergrad, but then later on you went to Syracuse yeah. and you got your master's degree in communication and in journalism. How yeah. does your journalism experience impact your design process? Well, that is, it's new. I only graduated last fall. Okay, but in saying that is. I wanted to go to to Syracuse and to do that program in particular to be a, a better storyteller. And I think what my experience there has taught me is just 
how important it is to to do your research, right? And to consider other things like how data comes into play with how you tell your story or how different technology in the media landscape changing can affect how you tell your story. And thoroughly understanding media law uh, will affect, you know, how you tell your story. So unfortunately, I haven't experienced enough in my current career that has informed that my education that can inform what I do with my creative path. But I do in going through the course and, you know, in finishing it, it did open my eyes to just how deep storytelling can go, especially when you're looking at it, when you're creating from a journalistic landscape, because one of the uh, a fun project I did during my master's was looking at the data of the black filmmakers, black directors and, and black casting, looking at how they fared the last 30 years in terms of reaching the top 10 status and how, although it may seem that we are represented in terms of the film industry, we are still having quite far some ways to go, you know, especially with the fact that there has not been a female director who is black who has reached top 10 highest grossing films. Mm-hmm. And there's only been kind of one black filmmaker to do that, which was Ryan Coogler with Black Panther. So I think like having that, doing those projects, right, they kind of helped me be curious about where are we now as a community and how much further do we have to go? So as I think about projects and things that I want to do, in the future, I know that having this education at Syracuse has given me a solid foundation in terms of understanding and learning how to you know, navigate storytelling better in any aspects of creativity, whether it's a film or, or creating different designs or developing a website. So yeah. when it comes to, to visual storytelling, like where do you typically try to begin the story? I'm trying to pull from my experience at the campaign. For me, is understanding the issues that are affecting the community. And I want to pull this North Carolina video again as an example, because it's probably one of the videos that I'm most proudest of that I was able to do in terms of visual storytelling. When I found out that this was what this community was going through, you know, the first thing you want to do is is research. And when you research, it allows you to think of some pointed questions that you can ask whoever you're the subject you're interviewing. And that's just kind of like the setup. Because when you are going to film and interview someone, what they say may be completely different from what you expected. Like what you go in there thinking is going to be the story ends up being something completely different. And you may have this, you may experience this, you know, doing the podcast. But I think when you are able to have all those elements come together, your research, the questions and the interview and the response, and you're able to transcribe that and find a story, you can then find supplemental materials there. So I think it all begins with just doing enough research on the issue that you have at hand. And I think doing enough research, whether it's even a video or or a design, can steadily inform which way you go about creating. So you're in the like DC area, you mentioned being in in Silver Springs, Maryland, but in the DMV area outside of the work you're doing with the campaign, like what is the design scene or the creative scene like there for you? 
for me, it's like everybody's. I think DC is unsung, man. DC doesn't get the love that it should. It's a very, very creative town, a creative city, this DMV area, especially within the black community. I think people, if you go on you know, IG, there is a sense of community. There is a sense of people actively creating. I think like, and, and this is another thing, and I wanted to bring that up as it related to the conversation about career paths and what's you know distinguished and what, what isn't. You still find that People who are engineers on their side hustle is that they uh, paint or that they bake cookies or that they design shoes or have a fashion brand. And you kind of find a lot of that in, in the DMV area, especially within the black community that they have. It's like they, they live a double life. They have their nine to five. You know, I'm going to clock in and clock out in my engineer job. But as soon as they're out, they're out being creative and out, you know, hustling and bustling. So I think you do find a lot of that in D.C. where people, you know, have that dual identity in terms of being a creative and being um, a someone who has a, I guess, a, a distinguished career in like engineering or so. Mm-hmm. And you also have like, I think me being here, this is a very rich African immigrant community. And being raised in that environment, I've always felt comfortable being around here and from churches to little grocery shops to even now, you know, venues and uh, clubs that are owned by Africans. You kind of see that that also that community also as well. What keeps you motivated and inspired these days? I mean, these are some interesting times that we're in Uh right now. You're also working for a political campaign, which is always full of ups and downs in a campaign. I don't care like where you're at in terms of rankings or whatnot. What keeps you inspired, motivated these days? Oh man, it's tough these days, man. It just, things just seem so, so dreary and you don't, we don't see a way out right now. But I kind of just look back at my past and the nature of how I got to this country and how I am able to to be where I am now, despite the obstacles that faced me with my immigration status or what have you. And I look at my father and, and my late mother and the things that they were able to do to provide for me with the little that they have. And what keeps me inspired is knowing that I have the opportunity to build generational wealth. And I'm not just talking about wealth financially. I'm talking about wealth, you know, with knowledge, the person with my Adoramola last name to have bachelor's and a master's degree. So that is legacy. That is wealth to me. And when I think about the future that I want to have for my future kids and my future wife, I think about that. And to be able to say, hey, I've had these experiences while taking a path that wasn't traditional or or easy is what keeps me motivated. Like I, I want to do so much and I'm grateful to have this experience in the campaign because I've learned so much and what I'm going to be able to take in the future is exciting and what I want to build for, for my legacy and the community for Black people in general to share the stories and to have more people to be able to say, hey, that's somebody that looks like me that's representing a different sector or telling stories that are nuanced in a way that haven't been told enough because people think all black people are the same. Mm-hmm. So when I think about 
all of those things together, my history, my path, and what I want to create for the community, that definitely keeps me motivated, especially in these down times where everyone's just sitting at home and it just seems like it's Groundhog's Day, the movie, where you're just repeating the day over and over and over and over and over again. You know, I look at the books on my bookshelf and say, hey, I haven't read that book. Maybe I can learn something about it. You know what I'm saying? And have that experience of reading the book inform how I want to create in the future. So little things like that, like, will, will keep me motivated. And, you know, just honestly, people like you, Maurice, like people who are out there creating and seeking out the stories, even when people weren't trying to tell you what black designers are in the campaign. You went and taught yourself. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, like, honestly, like just knowing that people are creating their own platforms. And, and when I see people who are doing things that I want to do, or are somewhat adjacent, I don't get jealous. I get inspired. Like, man, that was tight. Let me see if I can do it better. Yeah. So just like the the creative community, the black creative community as a whole just always motivates me. And I just want to always see us win, no matter if you're a black immigrant or you're born and raised in the South or wherever you're from. Like, I think black people, when we learn that we can create more and create together, I think it'll be a phenomenal thing and definitely something to keep keep me motivated and inspired. Amen to that. Yeah. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? It's it's 2025. Hopefully uh-huh. all of this pandemic mess is a faint memory behind us. But but what kind of work do you see yourself doing in the next five years? Honestly, man, I, and I'm working towards this right now is um, just I want to have my own uh, media company and I want to be able to use that media company to tell black stories in new and unique ways that are informed by my experiences of being raised in America as a black immigrant and bridging the gap between black identities. I want to do that work, whether it's, you know, through video or, you know, audio storytelling with podcasts, but just continue to contribute to the zeitgeist of black creatives and continue to offer something new and to create more room at the table for different kinds of black creativity. So in the next five years, I want to spread that good juju to the world and be working for myself, you know, and employing other black creatives, other creatives of color to lead that that legacy of telling unique, nuanced stories of the black community. All right. Well, just to, you know, kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? Yeah. So I'm fairly active on Twitter. My handle is Sam Originals, one word, S-A-M-O-R-I-G-I-N-A-L-S. And it's the same with Instagram. I'm not as active on Instagram, but you'll see me there. And, you know, my website, samadaramola.com. And yeah, just look out. I got working on some things in the future. And yeah, if you are politically activated, vote. Make sure you vote. Make sure your voice is heard and make sure you're registered because Oh, we don't want another pandemic that is mishandled. <laughs> Listen, I mean, I, I know this is a design <laughs> podcast and I don't mean to get political, but like for y'all that are listening, if the last three months have not mm-hmm. shown you how important it is to get out and have your voice heard in Speak terms of it. the future of this country, I don't know what will. I don't yeah. know what celebrity needs to dance a jig in the streets or whatever to get you to get out there and vote. But like it is necessary. Just look at what the last three months have been like in this country yeah, and you absolutely. should go vote. That's yeah. all I'm going to say. That's go all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. 
not just I'll in 2022. Say, yeah. Gotta, you know, every every two years, you got to put that in action. Just vote. And, you know, be active in your, your communities. Like the situations have always been worse for, for black people, even before the pandemic. And this pandemic is just going to further exasperate the disparities that we have in this country. So get active. And like Bernie says, never lose your sense of outrage. Don't lose it. All we have is our life on the line. So, so just get active, get informed, still create, but don't lose your sense of outrage. Yeah. Well, Samuel Adaramola, thank you so much for coming on the show. Again, I know we are recording this during very trying times right now that we're all going through in this country. But I mean, I think just your message and your drive and really just like your enthusiasm for making sure that you're telling stories is something that we need now more than ever, whether it's on a political campaign or not, just people that are out there that can show not just how different we are, but also how we're very much the same in many ways is really important. And I'm really going to be excited to see what you do next. I I feel like this is just the start for you for whatever next is going to be coming big. So thank you so much. much. Yeah, no, thank you for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me, Maurice, and I look forward to to hearing myself. <laughs> <laughs> All right, take care. Big, big thanks to Samuel Adaramola, and of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Samuel and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. And of course, thanks to our sponsors for this episode, Facebook Design and Abstract. Facebook Design is a proud sponsor of Revision Path. To learn more about how the Facebook Design community is designing for human needs at unprecedented scale, please visit Facebook.design. This episode is also brought to you by Abstract, design workflow management for modern design teams. Spend less time searching for design files and tracking down feedback, and spend more time focusing on innovation and collaboration. Like Glitch but for designers, Abstract is your team's version control source of truth for design work. With Abstract, you can version sketch design files, present work, request reviews, collect feedback, and give developers direct access to all specs all from one place. Sign your team up for a free 14-day trial today by heading over to www.abstract.com. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. Are you looking for some creative consulting for your next project? Then let's do lunch. Visit us at yepitslunch.com. I'll put a link in the show notes. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. Our transcripts are provided by Glitch. So what did you think of this episode? Hit us up on Twitter or Instagram, or even better, by leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Even better, I'll read your review right here on the show. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.